Mitchell and Webb Sound, starring David Mitchell and Robert Webb, with Olivia Coleman and James Bond. Well, cheers, everyone. Lovely to be back in the Shire. Much nicer than Mordor, I can tell you. Yeah, I can imagine. Did the tour operator apologise? Well, we eventually got our money back, but it was ridiculous. I mean, the hotel wasn't even finished, and there was nothing to eat apart from horrible, greasy orc food. I mean, I know some people really like it, but to me it just looks like entrails. Well, we shouldn't blame the orcs. I mean, they've just got different priorities. I mean, since all this business with the ring blew up... Oh, can we please not talk about the ring? I mean, I, I don't follow politics, but sometimes you just want to say, you know, it's only a ring. Mm. <laughs> yes, but it is a ring of power. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's quite complicated, really. Uh, it's a ring of power. It makes you invisible. It makes you addicted to it. And, of course, it is the ring to rule all rings. How does that work? Well, it's a bit difficult to explain. Uh, it's a system of government by jewellery. You see, the thing you have to understand is that in Mordor, the ring is a really big deal. You know, it's part of their culture. And at the end of the day, it is Sauron's ring. You know, what right do we have to keep it from him? Yeah, but well, would he look after it properly, though? Well, we haven't given him the chance, have we? Oh, to be fair, I think the fear is that he'd use it to take over Middle-earth and plunge it into a millennium of evil darkness. Oh, right, but we're responsible enough to take care of the ring. I think that's quite a patronising attitude, actually, Roger. <laughs> well, all I'll say is that it's the ordinary orcs who are really suffering. I mean, it's all very well some people saying, don't buy wine from Mordor, but that's not going to hurt Sauron. <laughs> To be honest, Roger won't like this, but sometimes I wonder exactly where we get off saying that Sauron is evil, is, quote, the bad guy. You know, isn't that all just a little bit comfortable? Might it, might it, be just a little bit more complicated than that? Peace at any price, is it? Peter, if we'd listened to people like you 50 years ago, we'd all be speaking dwarf now. Oh, come on! Good evening and welcome to Imagine That. Tonight's Imagineers are the journalist and broadcaster Mark Kendall. Good evening. The author June Faulkner. Good evening. And head of physics at University College London, Professor David Trussell. Hello. It's good evening. Sorry, good evening. <laughs> so to start us off tonight, we've got an email from a Mr. Harry Cooper in Western Supermare who asks, what is the biggest baked potato you can imagine? <laughs> Mark Kendall. Well, I wouldn't have any trouble imagining a baked potato as big as a planet. Don't be ridiculous. You're quite obviously imagining something like the Death Star in Star Wars and superimposing a baked potato over it. No, I'm not. Yeah, of course you are, and it's meaningless. What does the skin look like? How big is the knob of butter on the top? It'd have to be at least as big as a mountain, if not bigger. And I dispute that you can even conceive of such a thing. Well, June, if I could turn this around to you then, what's the biggest baked potato you can imagine? Well, I'm thinking of one about the size of a London bus. Oh, that's rubbish. You're not even trying. <laughs> well, at least I'm attempting something realistic. Well, if I could just bring the professor in for a moment, Professor Trussell. Well, in, in my mind's eye, I'm kind of picturing a baked potato... Roughly the size of a normal baked potato, but about 15 to 20% bigger. So, just a large baked potato, then? Oh, hold on. I'm imagining a bigger one now. Yes, this is definitely working. I, I can see the skin, the large flakes of cooked potato inside are definitely conceivable, about the size of a big boulder. And the whole thing? It's about the size of Castle Howard, where they filmed Brideshead Revisited. <laughs> Mark, any thoughts? Well, I'd just like to say that the Death Star isn't actually a planet. It's a space station. <laughs> Good Lord! I just got a glimpse of the oven my potato was baked in. 
I imagine that must be pretty big. It is. It's the size of Lake Geneva. Ah, oh, that's just impossible. Wait, the door to the oven's opened, and I can see eight Castle Howard-sized potatoes in there, so there's obviously guests coming around. <laughs> Though I can't quite imagine how big they'd be. So, moving on to the next topic, and this one comes from Mrs Mary Watkins in Dunfermline. Can the panel imagine a horse the size of a pin? <laughs> Mark Kendall? Not really, no. June Faulkner? Don't be ridiculous. Professor Trussell? Well, I suppose I could, but then I'd be imagining jockeys the size of dust and stirrups on the subatomic level, which to me seems very unlikely. Good, so we're all agreed we can't imagine a horse the size of a pin. I uh, hope that answers your question, Mary. No programme next week due to the cricket snooker, which, if you remember, is a game we all imagined last year, so... <laughs> nice to see that's taken off. But we will be back in two weeks' time with a special edition of Imagine That, where the panel will be trying to imagine what it would be like if they had a beard. I have got a beard. Good night. Oh, look, Tim, on the horizon. Isn't that a ship? So it is, Paul. A tea clipper, isn't it? No, that's never a clipper. It's a sloop, if anything. Could be, yes. Do you reckon it's heading this way? Bound to be. They've probably spotted this island and are planning to take on fresh supplies of food. Right. Paul? Yes? That's probably not wholly good news for us large, slow-moving, flightless birds, is it? <laughs> oh. I see what you mean. No, it's not ideal, is it? We are definitely flightless, are we? I think we pretty much are entirely flightless, Paul, yes. Watch. Yes, you stayed pretty resolutely earthbound there. I did, yes, and I was flapping my hardest. Oh, dear. So, um, whose idea was it that we birds should be flightless? Well, according to legend, it was the idea of wise old Colin. One day, wise old Colin beheld that we have no natural predators, that our food is only found upon the ground, and that flying is, when all said and done, a bit of a fag. And so, <laughs> wise old Colin bade the flock to cast off the shackles of flight and to allow their wings to shrivel and become vestigial. Vestigial? That was the very word he used. And so it was that we became flightless and that Colin became known as wise old Colin. I see. Well, no disrespect to Colin, but I can't help wonder, in retrospect, if that decision doesn't somewhat smack of complacency. What, you mean with that clipper? Or sloop. Or, as you say, sloop coming ever closer and us stranded in our flightless way on this tiny island with a top speed on the ground of three miles an hour. Yes, and with fluorescent orange and yellow plumage, which glows in the dark. Yes, and of course, being made entirely from delicious milk chocolate. I knew that would come back to haunt us. Well, I suppose we ought to warn the others. Yes, I suppose so. All right, you go and tell the tobacco monkeys and I'll tell the whiskey badger. Radio Switzerland Next week on Alpine the Archers, Franz cuts himself on his own Swiss army knife and there's an explosion in the cuckoo clock factory. You're listening to Radio Switzerland. You're Swiss in Switzerland, and I'm speaking Swiss. <laughs> Being Swiss, you understand it so well, it's like English would sound to an English person. And now the weather. Not much point in distinguishing between bits of Switzerland because it's so small. The weather will remain snowy on the mountaintops with lush green valleys full of houses that look weird. <laughs> 
And now it's time for Swiss history. This week, 1939 to 1945, the gold rush. Last week, we looked at the This week we turn to the early 1940s, a period which some historians have described as the Second World War. September 1939 and Europe stands on the brink of peace. British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain threatens Switzerland with a plan to prevent hostilities. Herr Gerpard, who lived through it, remembers those dark days. Well, we, we just finished the extension to the hotel, ready for the massive influx of rich political refugees, when we heard the news. Talk of peace. We were devastated. All our plans for the future were in ruins. It was bad for us, but it was worse for the profiteers. But good news was just around the corner for Herr Gerpard and people like him. The German army swept through Western Europe, driving all before it, and the hotel was saved. Of course, uh, things became pretty tough by about 1943. My cousin, who's a banker, came to me one night and said, I've no more room in my house for all the Nazi gold. (laughs) So... I moved my whole family into the top half of the house and and filled the other rooms with fascist treasure. Staff announcement. Mr Sands is in the boiler room. I repeat, Mr Sands is in the boiler room. He's making it very hot in there. And and he's licking up the walls with his fiery... Oh, I I mean, sandy tongue. And Mr Sands is also eating a sofa and being sick some smoke. Could staff discreetly give Mr Sands a shower or suffocate Mr Sands with a large blanket? Thank you. Hello, yes, it's me, Jason. You all remember me from the airport docu-soap. I tried to top myself and absolutely stole it. Anyway, welcome to, what's it called? Hold that straight. Yeah, Makeover City, the show where you come on the show and get a makeover. So, anyway, here I am in the Brent Cross Shopping Centre talking to this man whose name I've forgotten. Who are you? Martin. Martin. That's as good a name as any. It's Martin City round here. What's your surname, Martin? City. Really? (laughs) No. Oh, you're priceless. You should have your own show or shows like me. And... (laughs) You've got a problem for us, haven't you? And don't say herpes. Right. You see, other presenters, they couldn't get away with that. Unlike moi, who is a real person. (laughs) They just love whatever I come up with. Come on then, Martin. Well, my wife says I need some new socks, because a lot of mine... Right, so we're going to give you a total socks makeover. Off you go. Go on. Right, well, while Martin is beavering away trying to find the socks that'll best express his personality, such as it is, I'll be talking to Margaret. Miriam. Now, Miriam, (laughs) what are you looking for? I'd better say it's a bag, isn't it? Um, well, yeah, my old one's a bit battered and I want a new one. What would be the goal at the end of your bag rainbow? Or bag at the end of... Go on. (laughs) Well, I want a bag that's, you know, quite large and practical, but at the same time very, very sexy. Right, let's go shopping. Phew, I'm quite exhausted. Right, what do you think to your bag, Miriam? Mission success? Mission successful? Successful mission? Yeah, I think... uh... Accomplished! Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished? Yeah. Good. And so he's got his socks as well. Excellent. So that's the end of the programme. Climax. (laughs) We'll be back tomorrow and you can also see me tonight hosting Question Time. I'm a bit of a draw. Apparently people are getting quite bored of that old man. (laughs) Bye!
Oh, and that's a bad miss. <laughs> Very upsetting for him. John Parrott, of course, is old enough to remember the days when that long walk back from the table ended in the consolation of a proper drink. That's right. Be it a pint, a mixer, or even a cocktail. I remember Terry Griffiths back in the 70s getting through an entire tournament on Nutty Ernest's. Yes, they say he didn't even eat during that tournament. Well, they say that, Peter, but they're wrong. They mean Ray Reardon on Guinness in 72. Because I myself tried out a little Thai place with Terry in his Nutty Ernest year. And you should have seen him guzzle those prawns. What a contrast. Look at John Parrott sitting there, staring mournfully at his water. You could put a goldfish in that glass, and it wouldn't even die. <laughs> yeah, well, Sex and the City's my favourite programme. People say it's for girls, but that's nonsense. I'm just as interested as any woman in fashion and saucy chat with my friends about how I'm going to get an orgasm. <laughs> Although I do know how I'm going to get an orgasm. <laughs> It's not rocket science. <laughs> but, no, m me and the boys, we've come to be inspired by that programme, and we thought, why can't we be like that? We're sparky, switched-on, professional... Well, I mean, we've got jobs. <laughs> We're living in the big city, Ipswich. So why can't we walk down the high street, looking in shoe shops for ages, worrying about our relationships, and wondering whether you can ever beat the classic little black pair of trousers? <laughs> I've just definitely got to get those shoes. Just look at them. They're begging me to make them mine. Go, Go on, on, then. <laughs> oh, but no, Alan and Ted. I shouldn't. I've got so many pairs of shoes. How many? Two. <laughs> yeah, we just like hanging out downtown, sometimes uptown, in the middle, basically, near where Mark's is. <laughs> Here we are, three margaritas. Can we have pints after this? No. <laughs> These shoes hurt. What we also like to do is to have boy sleepovers where we just sit around on my bed in our pyjamas, cutting our toenails and discussing the pros and cons of getting a bikini wax. <laughs> Which, in the end, none of us did when we found out what that meant. <laughs> So, Jason, you forgot to lend me that new underarm deodorant you discovered. Well, links. Yeah. Yes, links. Get your own. Right. Alan, tell me about your relationship. How are things going with Carol? What? Oh, all right. Uh, um, I mean, it's very complicated. Not good at all. I'm a mess. Oh, no. Well, well my advice would be... Uh... Probably best not think about it. That's what I have been doing. Of course, it's essential to get out of the city at the weekend, maybe go to the Hamptons. It's quite a big round trip, actually, because Northampton and Southampton are quite far apart. And as for Wolverhampton, don't go there. I mean, we don't. Staff announcement. Um, Mr Suspicious Ticking... Is in an unattended hold all by the sweet counter. Could staff please put on their happy faces and establish a meaningless perimeter in the hope that 
Mr. The Bomb Squad arrive before Mr. and Mrs. Mass Tramping Panic. Thank you. Hello, is this the right room for introduction to voodoo? Yes, take a seat. All right, everyone, my name is Mr. Pretty, and welcome to Practical Voodoo 101. Now, voodoo isn't just about curses and raising the dead. Today, I'm going to show you some simple spells that you can use in everyday life. Now, let's say a house guest has overstayed his welcome and you want him to leave. All you do is simply wait until he goes to bed and then take a live chicken, <laughs> slit the chicken's throat like so, and run into the guest bedroom spraying the spurting blood from the chicken's still convulsing body all over the bed, shouting, Unwelcome guest, be gone from my house! Unwelcome guest, be gone from my house! <laughs> And how long before you'd expect to see results? With, with this particular spell, it's usually fairly instantaneous. <laughs> now, how many of you here came on the bus? Quite a few. Isn't it annoying when you can't get a seat? Yes, yeah, Right, well, here's a little ritual which can help with that. You take a chicken. <laughs> again, you cut off its head. And spray the person in the seat you want with the chicken's blood, chanting, Give me the seat! By the power of Loha, I command you to give me your seat! Sorry, but this doesn't sound like magic at all. You're just spraying people with chicken blood. <laughs> I thought this might happen. There's always one, isn't there? Right. <laughs> Be gone from my night class, unwelcome student! Be gone from my night class, unwelcome student! Uh, all right. Oh, God. Yeah, all right. I'm going. Well, I, I have to admit I was a sceptic when I signed up for this class, but that was remarkable. Come on, Michael, let's sit on this nice bench. Say thank you to the nice man for moving up for us. Thank you. That's my pleasure. <laughs> oh, listen to that, what a nice man. Now, eat your crisps. Or perhaps a nice man would like one of your crisps. Why don't you ask him? Don't want to. Oh, go on. Go on, offer the nice man a crisp. Don't want a crisp. That's very kind, but no thank you. He doesn't no, want... No, insist. Insist. <laughs> insist on the nice man having a crisp. Please have a crisp. Um, thank you very much. Now, maybe the nice man would like to offer Mummy one of his fags in return? <laughs> um, I'm sorry? Ask the nice man if Mummy can have a fag. Can Mummy have a fag? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, what a nice man. I wonder if the nice man's going to give Mummy a light? Here you are. Oh, the nice man's just handed me his lighter instead of lighting Mummy's fag for her while making eye contact. Doesn't the nice man know how to flirt? Don't you know how to flirt? Yeah, he heard me. <laughs> oh, uh, sorry, allow me. Oh, that's better. I wonder if the nice man lives locally? Um, are, are you talking to me? Mummy says, where do you live? Um, just around the corner. Oh! What a nice area. Oh, nice man must be loaded. Well. Does, does a nice man want to show mummy his lovely big house? Perhaps a nice man could buy you a comic and you could sit downstairs reading it while the nice man takes mummy upstairs for a cuddle. Um, I, I've got to go. Oh, well, there goes another nice man. Looks like you blew it, Michael. <laughs> Keep this up and you're never going to get another daddy. Yeah, it's, it's a medical drama, but with the emphasis on drama, not medicine. It, it's the drama that people care about. I, I think you can get far too bogged down in so-called research. Yeah, the producer arranged for us to follow a team of paramedics around for a month, but that just instinctively felt wrong. I mean, a month? Yeah, I mean, we just... I had a holiday booked. Yeah. 
we just, we just wanted to cut through all that sort of high-flown medical jargon and really get into what makes people tick. Do people tick? Yeah, I think so. Last week on Emergency Medical Treatment. Quickly, Doctor, this patient is incredibly poorly. My God, I don't think I've ever seen anyone look so peaky. Get me the medicine in here right now. Get out of the way, Doctor. This is my patient. Stand back. I'm doing the medical treatment here. I'm sorry, Steve. I can't let you do that. You're just the sort of doctor who makes people go to sleep for operations, whereas I specialise in people who've been in the wars in this particular way. The medicine, Doctor. You fool, nurse. This is medicine for a different illness from this one. Am I going to be all right, Doctor? Yes, definitely. But we need to give you a spoonful of the right medicine or maybe a tablet. I'm afraid this isn't going to taste very nice. Stand back. We're going to have to use the electric shock that's a sort of medicine if you're very ill, but can make you a sort of ill if you're fine. (laughs) Clear! Oh no, he was fine. Now he's poorly from too much electric. Listen to me, hospital accountant. I don't care about the funding cuts. We're low on medicine and pills and rooms for doing operations in. Do you expect us to make people feel better in tents, like in MASH? Yeah, well, I'm going to go down to Superdrug with a hospital checkbook, and there's nothing you can do to stop me. Oh, Eric, I'm really sorry it didn't work out with you two. I I just want to say... I know I was Lucy's friend first, but I really feel for you both. If there's anything I can do... No, no, that's all right. I mean, um, at least it's amicable, you know. We're still talking. Right, yeah. Is that a good idea, do you think? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, what would your advice be? Oh, it's so difficult. I don't think anyone ever really knows what to do. But, um, well, for what it's worth, I suppose what you should probably do is... is Get a box full of her belongings that you've, you've still got. Take them round to where she's living now and burn them in the front garden. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's going to feel weird. It's bound to, but I really think it's better in the long run. Yeah. And then, and then maybe go round to where she works, plant some crack in her desk and call the police. Hiya. Uh, what, what are we talking about? Oh, the Lucy situation. Oh, right. Shall I leave you to it? No, no, it's all right, mate. Julie was just giving me a bit of advice. Right. Has he planted the crack yet? No, I was just saying. Oh, you've got to do that. I felt a lot better when my last relationship ended, when I got to the point where I felt comfortable with planting the crack. Really? It's just part of the whole closure process. You know, going to see her parents, forming an alliance with her dad, get drunk with him, talk about her faults, and then make sure that she knows you've had that conversation. Then you've got to build your new life. Now might be a good time to think about getting a tattoo. Little trick I learnt, every time you think of her, have a quick whiskey. Okay. Hi, everyone. Are we talking about Lucy? Yeah, yeah. Here, I've got you a whiskey. Thanks. <laughs> That's the way. So, what stage are you at? Haven't even done the crack yet. Oh, you can't rush these things. <laughs> Does she have a pet? Uh, yes. You should kill it. <laughs> In a weird way. Skin the cat, leave it on the doorstep, make sure she knows it's you. I mean, how else is she going to realise it's over? I'm just not sure if it is over. Hmm. Well, it will be then. Staff 
announcement. Mr. Some Old Woman's just died. He's in seat R14 in the stalls. He's in the building. Could staff please escort Mrs. Her Husband out of the auditorium so he's not in earshot when Mr. Bad News and Mrs. His Brain are introduced? Thank you. Right, so who else? Shall we invite Money Penny? Oh, yeah, let's have Money Penny. She's always good value. Although. What? She might bring that bloke. Oh, no, yeah. I think I know the one you mean. The tall one. What's his name? John. James. James. <laughs> what a pillock. Do you remember last time? It was only a barbecue. He turned up in his tuxedo. Yeah. Stood around all evening making smug remarks. Yeah, smug. That's what it is, isn't it? He thinks he's funny, but it just comes out smug. I don't know what money Penny sees in him. Well, you remember that drinks do I had just before Christmas? Money Penny brings John. James. James. <laughs> so I thought, oh God, but you know, Christmas spirit. Absolutely. So I said, hi James, we've got mulled wine, or I think there's some beer in the fridge. Yeah. Pratt asked for a martini. A martini? A martini, yeah. Oh, come on. So I said, I'm sorry, James, I don't think we've got any martini. I mean, why would I have any martini? Does he think it is, 1973? Yeah, because I got stuck with him later and I, I was trying to make conversation, so I asked him what he did, and he proceeded to heavily imply that he was a secret agent. <laughs> it's money, Penny, I feel sorry for. Did you see when I was going around with the mulled wine? What? I went up to Moneypenny. James was standing next to her. He was on the Guinness by this stage. <laughs> he had foam all over his top lip, but, you know, I didn't want to embarrass him. Anyway, I said to Moneypenny, can I fill you up? And she says, no thanks, I'm fine. And then James pipes up with, ooh, Moneypenny, that's the first time I've heard you refuse a fill-up. <laughs> oh, God, is that supposed to mean sex? I think so. I think, I think it's supposed to mean sex. I mean, I didn't know where to look, and I think Moneypenny was quite hurt. Well, she was probably still recovering from the Darren incident. What was that? Oh, didn't you hear? Darren turned up. Um, you know what he's like when he's had a few, but, you know, we're none of us perfect. And anyway, he starts getting a bit lippy about James's cigarette case. What did he say? Oh, he said it was gay. Well, it is gay. Well, exactly, I know. So... So everyone's just laughing, thinking, oh, bit cheeky, but, you know. And then suddenly, James picks him up and throws him through a window. Hell's bells! Is that why Darren can't walk now? Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy landed on a railing spike and it went through his spine. Every everyone's in shock, apart from James, who strolls over to the window, looks down and says, what a piercing bore. <laughs> Piercing bore? There's no such expression. I know. Well, the railing was next to a crusher. It's pretty clear that he wanted to say crushing bore, but he'd missed, and so he's making the best of a bad job. What a real ass! Because at the end of the evening, I found Money Penny on her own in the kitchen. I think she'd been crying. And I said, you know, what are you doing with this man? He drinks constantly. I think he's got a problem. Yeah. He doesn't respect you. He brings a gun to parties. Does he? Well, this is why he won't take his jacket off. He stands there sweltering. Anyway, she starts defending him, saying, oh, there's a lot of things about James that you don't know, blah, blah, his wife died. Oh, dear, that is sad. Well, that's what I said, and I said, you know, when did this happen? And she says, 1969. <laughs> anyway, I tried to sound sympathetic, said I'd give him a second chance, said, come on, let's go and find the others, and so we walk back into the living room, and he's having sex with my wife. Oh. <laughs> That Mitchell and Webb Sound starred Robert Webb, David Mitchell, Olivia Coleman, and James Barkman. 
It was written by David Mitchell and Robert Webb, Jesse Armstrong and Sam Bain, David Quantic, James Barkman and Mark Evans, John Finnamore, and Chris Reddy. And the producer was Gareth Edwards. <laughs>